What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So when, when Jay World Marriott you know, started Marriott, he didn't say, I have this vision for this great hotel empire. He didn't even have any vision of hotels. He just had an AW repair stand. But it was going to be the best AW repair stand in the world. <laughs> and, and, then, and then he began to realize that he was really good at kind of creating a little microculture. And then some, he said, well, I can make him turn this into a, a little restaurant, which he called a hot shop. And then there were these hot shop restaurants. And, they, and it, so notice again, it's the flywheel, little steps leading to something bigger. And it was simply an organic one step after another. Oh, that worked. We can make more of that. That worked. We can make more of that. And eventually, you know, you, you end up with Marriott. So just because you started with a humble start in no way means that that's where you, where you have to stop. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode What else makes great companies tick? On our last episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with the great Jim Collins. He spoke about his decades of research into what makes a company not just good, but truly sustainable, and what makes growth continue to spiral into greatness over the years. We also talked about what qualities really effective leaders share. This week, we're digging in even farther and bringing Jim's three decades of research and insight into great companies into this present moment. Before we do that, if you haven't listened to our last episode, I urge you to hit pause and go back and do so. It'll be worth your time. If you have, stay right here. Jim and I are about to dig into what happens to entrepreneurship during an economic slump, like this year, and how historically great leaders have managed through extreme uncertainty, like this pandemic, and have still piloted their companies to success. I want to take a take a little bit of a a turn into right now into this moment we're at. We are we are taping this show on inauguration day, and wow, what a year we've been through. Um, you know, I I think you've studied so much about how businesses operate in chaos, um, and the last ten months of this pandemic have uh, have I mean been so hard for so many businesses out there, and and so challenging um, in terms of you know even the the government's response to to the pandemic, um, I think if if Trump um, and his tenure has taught us something, it's that, wow, all of this like leadership stuff we talk about all the time, it actually is important. There actually is good leadership and there is is leadership that that falls apart when it's most needed, right? I mean, what what can what can folks take away from um, the the response and what's your kind of reaction to to the administration's response to the pandemic? like what how would you diagnose that and and how can it get better from here? Well, my as I as I've watched our world and what we've all been struggling with over the last a little over, oh, well, I guess it's been about a year now. And and by the way, uh, so we're recording this actually on inauguration day. It's January twenty. And 
just uh, and, and I always love for these conversations to be timeless, so I don't want to tie it too much to the moment. But one thing I, I think about is for anybody who's run a marathon, for me with the pandemic, it feels like uh, we're at mile 20 of the marathon. And if you've ever run a marathon, I'm not a great marathoner, but I've, I've run somewhere. I like to describe it as they ran me. <laughs> that at, 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 at mile 20, you're not quite halfway out of a 26-mile mm. race. Mm-hmm. because the amount of difficulty and, and suffering and, I mean, everything happens in that last 10K. You either fall apart or, or you really hold it together. And so I kind of feel like we're at mile 20 of the pandemic marathon. Chronologically, we're over halfway there, but the last six miles are the hardest. And so we need to accept that we're at mile 20, but we're basically about halfway in terms of what it's going to call upon us uh, to, to do. Now, as the pandemic was starting, I, I actually ended up recording a, I don't post much on things like YouTube, et cetera, but I ended up recording a, a video for YouTube because I wanted to share a concept that I think is vital now and was vital then that came from our work, and it's the Stockdale Paradox. I, what, the way I look at this whole time is the leaders that have embraced the Stockdale Paradox and who lead with the Stockdale Paradox are serving us well. And the leaders who don't embrace the Stockdale Paradox are not serving us well, whether it's in our companies and society or wherever. What is the Stockdale Paradox? Yeah, what is the Stockdale um, Paradox? Yes. <laughs> so this is one of the ideas that came from good to great that entrepreneurs need all the way along, but it's been especially acute. Let me just share the story of it. Admiral Jim Stockdale was the highest ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton uh, prisoner of war camp. He was shot down over Vietnam in 1967. He was in the camp for something like seven years. And I had the privilege to get to know Admiral Stockdale uh, a bit when he was studying Stoic philosophy across the street at the Hoover Institute when I was teaching the small business and entrepreneurship class in the business school. And in preparation for this lunch I was going to have with Admiral Stockdale, I sat down and I read his book, In Love and War, which is alternating chapters by himself and his wife about his years in the camp. And as I read the book, I found myself starting to get depressed and you got a picture that I'm sitting there in a really nice panel office looking out at like the fog coming in over the hills on the peninsula and out on the oval and it's beautiful. And I'm feeling like there's a dementor in the room or something. I mean, I'm really beginning to feel down. And I began to realize it's because you're in the prison camp and you don't know how long it's going to take before you get out of the prison camp. They can take you out at any time and torture you. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. They can put you in leg irons. And it just struck me as so um, un, uh, painful and bleak and no clear end date. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute. I'm feeling this way reading about it. I'm only reading about it. I'm not even living it. And... I know the end of the story. I actually know he gets out. I know he reunites with his wife and his family. And I know that we're going to have lunch together coming up in the following week and go for a walk on this beautiful campus. How on earth did he actually endure it and live it? Not knowing 
the end of the story. How did he not capitulate to despair? And when I asked him that very question, he said, oh, I never, I never capitulated to despair because I never ever wavered in my faith, not only that I would get out, but I would turn it into a defining event of my life that in retrospect, I would not trade. And then we were quiet for a while as we walked. And I, as we got close to the faculty club, where we were going to have lunch. I said, Admiral Stockdale, who didn't make it out as strong as you? Oh, that's easy. He said it was the optimists. I said, what do you mean the optimists? He said, those are the people who said we're going to be out by Christmas. That's the line that I always yeah. think about when I hear Stockdale paradox. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Christmas would come and it would go. And then we're going to be out by Easter and it would come and it would go. And then maybe another Christmas would come and go. And they suffered from a broken heart. And that's when I learned this lesson from Admiral Stockdale that you must never ever confuse the need on the one hand for absolute unwavering faith that we can and we will prevail in the end with the need for the discipline to confront the brutal facts and what they mean as they actually are right now. I feel this whole last year has been an extended Stockdale moment. We have to have the unwavering, as, as company leaders, as leaders in our communities, and our families, uh, in our countries. We're in this, it, it, we can't capitulate to the despair. We have to have this unwavering faith that we can not only just survive, but we will actually prevail and we will take all these difficult things and figure out a way to turn them into defining events that will make us better. And at the same time, we have to pick up the rock and look underneath at all the ugly squiggly things and say, what are the brutal facts? What are the true actual brutal facts? Because if we don't confront the brutal facts, they're just going to keep coming and confronting us. For me, that lesson, which later ended up in Good to Great in the Confront the Brutal Facts chapter, because what we found was all of our business leaders who led companies through often extended periods of desperate times, they all had that Stockdale paradox, this unwavering faith that can get to the other side, and the discipline to confront the brutal facts. And they put the two of those together. We're still in a Stockdale moment, right? We need that Stockdale paradox with leaders who have the, the, the will to do whatever it takes to confront the brutal facts. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is something, too, about his ability to he, he took those brutal facts and was was proud of himself at the moment for getting through them and also could see that in the future he would be even prouder. Right. Could see that this would define mm -hmm. him. And I think a leader going through that hard time mm -hmm. needs to needs to also look at themselves and say this this could define me. And and I, I am proud mm -hmm. of this struggle that I'm going through. You know, Christine, it's it's interesting you you say that uh, there's a. I don't remember if I put this in the book uh, as part of the story. Um, the the story is just so rich and vivid in my mind. I probably never got it quite right on 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 the pages, but there was a there was something Jim Stockdale said to me that made a lasting impression, which was, 
you know, Jim, I'm, I'm the lucky one. Mm. And I'm mm-hmm. like, how do you think? <laughs> and he said, because I know, <laughs> yeah, think about that, right? I know the answer to the question of how I would do. You probably never will. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And think about if you're leading a company right now, are you leading with all the difficulties, all the challenges, all the demands, all the uncertainties, all the things that we're facing right now? Would you be able to stand there X number of years down the road and say, I know the answer of how I would do. I know the answer of how I would lead. I know the answer of whether my integrity held. And I like the answer. When we come back, I'll talk with Jim about a time when he got it wrong. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You know, financial crashes and crises like this one typically produce a preponderance of what you call necessary entrepreneurs, you know, people who start businesses because they've lost their jobs or can't find new ones. And this type of business tends to be kind of less ambitious or less successful than than those of opportunity. You know, entrepreneurs who begin with ideas that they are just so passionate about and believe that the market truly needs. Um, I'm kind of stealing this terminology from the Kauffman Foundation, which has done research um, like this. But do you have any advice for those those kind of necessary entrepreneurs um, that might help them reframe their thinking and and make them more likely to create great businesses? Yeah. So 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 two two things that immediately occur to me. The first is I'm I'm thinking through the the history of some of the some of the great companies and how humble their starts were. And in fact, in a number of cases, they actually started as their, their initial things didn't work. I mean, 3M started as a failed mine. Uh, the uh, if you go back to Masuro Abuka uh, uh, and Akil Morita, why did they end up starting Sony? Well, it was the Second World War, and there were no jobs. I mean, it's the end of the Second World War, and 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 they were like, well, I guess we better have our own job. And and they 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 made a rice cooker. Nobody bought it. <laughs> so so <laughs> yeah. they just kind of. They just kind of kept iterating from there. Or J. Ward Marriott's uh, senior. I mean, he, all he did was, all he knew was he didn't want to work for someone else. And he didn't necessarily, and he wanted to maybe go to a different part of the country. So he took out a single A&W root beer franchise for a single A&W root beer stand. And he took it with him to Washington, D.C. And he started with an A&W root beer stand. That's the start of Marriott. Wow. And And then he's, Right, exactly, and and so if you if you actually go back into the history, there's this wonderful uh, this uh, uh, in built to last. I put the founding roots of the visionary companies. It's really interesting how many of them had such humble or even disastrous starts, 
But what, what happened is, so when, when J. Wells Marriott you know, started Marriott, he didn't say, I have this vision for this great hotel empire. He didn't even have any vision of hotels. He just had an A.W. root beer stand. But it was going to be the best A.W. root beer stand in the world. <laughs> and, and, then, and then he began to realize that he was really good at kind of creating a little microculture. And then some, he said, well, I can make him turn this into a, a little restaurant, which he called a hot shop. And then there were these hot chop restaurants. And, they, and it, so notice again, it's the flywheel, little steps leading to something bigger. And it was simply an organic one step after another. Oh, that worked. We can make more of that. That worked. We can make more of that. And eventually, you know, you, you end up with Marriott. So just because you started with a humble start in no way means that that's where you, where you have to stop. The second is this. How do people figure out how to go from where they started to some of these bigger things? There's a principle that uh, came from the work Morton Hansen and I did for Great by Choice called um, Fire Bullets Then Fire Cannonballs. And the idea in your podcast, multiple times, you've talked about this myth that entrepreneurs are big risk takers. And we found that too. They're not big risk takers. They take calibrated, calculated risks. And, how do they, and then you got this question of fast failure and change. Well, there's a principle that even the smallest entrepreneur can use or the biggest company can use. So you're trying to figure out what's gonna work that can take you to the next step. One approach would be to take all the gunpowder you have. You got a ship bearing down on you. You take all the gunpowder you have, and it might be a little bit of gunpowder, it might be a lot, but you take all of it and you fire it at that ship and the cannonball sails out there and it misses, splashes in the water, and you turn and you look back and all of a sudden you're out of gunpowder and now you're in real trouble. But suppose instead what you did was you fired bullets. You think, I'm going to take a bullet. I'm going to take my best shot. It misses, but it's only 30 degrees off. I'll take another shot. Finally, I, you know, 10 degrees off, then ping, I hit the side of the ship, right? Those aren't failures. You have to, you, you have to reframe those small shots, not as failures. They're bullets. They're deliberate bullets. And you get calibration. And then once you know you have a calibrated line of sight, like that will work, you know, People really love this mask and the design stuff or whatever it happens to be. We have empirical validation it's working. Now we'll take the gunpowder we have. Reserving enough that if things go bad, we'll still be alive, but we will fire the cannonball. And if you study the evolution of how things went from small to exceptional, they usually did a process of firing bullets till they empirically validated what would work. Then they fired the cannonball. And then they would continue to do that through their entire history. Because even once you got the flywheel going, and it's actually now a hundred turn flywheel or a thousand turn flywheel, the way you take that flywheel and kind of renew and extend it is you're always firing bullets to then figure out what a next cannonball might be that takes the company to the next rendition. The first Marriott Hotel, which was about two, three decades into their history, was at that point a bullet that worked that then became the move into hotels, which was the cannonball. Getting back to um, a more personal question about the way the way you work mm. and the way you think, um, and this may be an unanswerable question. It's not one that everyone's got an answer for, but is there a time that that you ended up either getting it wrong or changing a deeply held idea or belief? Is there a time that, that you really changed your mind about something? Hmm. Actually, I, I, have, I have two, and maybe one of them will be... Um, 
uh, of interest to you. Uh, one is in the content and one is in something I still really, really struggle with that, that uh, I still think I get wrong a lot. And the content, one of the real big turning points for me was when we were doing the research for Good to Great. And I just was really skeptical of anything having to do with leadership. And the reason I was really skeptical of why we have anything to do, of like studying leadership at all is because I felt it was a giant circle. If you basically say, well, the company was great because it had great leadership, then if the company doesn't do well, it must be bad leadership. We're just going in a circle. We're not learning anything. And we continue to perpetuate this sort of hero and leader worship. And I just felt that it was intellectually sloppy. And, and I wasn't interested. And I, wasn't in a, and I knew that, that from built to last research, that if you look over a long enough period of time, it's never a single leader. I mean, even as extraordinary as Steve Jobs was as a leader, Apple's continued to go on beyond because it's ultimately about building the company that doesn't depend on a single leader, right? That was what the founders of our country understood was it can never be a single leader. It has to be an ongoing process. So I was very, very skeptical of leadership. But when we were doing the research in Good to Great, my research team came in one day and they revolted and they they'd sort of joined hands and they said, uh, today's the day, Jim, we're going to tell you that you're wrong. Hmm. So well, about what? And, said, yeah. <laughs> and fortunately for me, I have I have this need to surround myself with young people who don't really care what I think. <laughs> and uh, and so so they uh, uh, they said about this anti leadership bias you have because in studying the inflections in the good to great companies, it's clear that the leader had a big part to do with that. Even if they weren't charismatic, there's a big part to do with it. And I said, well, let's go to our comparison companies, the companies that didn't make it. They also had leadership. They had, they had towering leadership sometimes. They had very charismatic leadership, yet they didn't make that good to great leap. And it's math equation. If you have the same numerator, same variable in the numerator as the denominator, it crosses out. And so I said, good to great companies had leadership. Comparison companies had leadership. Leadership drops out. It's an irrelevant variable. I sat down after writing that on the whiteboard and said, let's go back to work and do something useful. And uh, the team, to my great good fortune, fought back. And they said, the evidence, Jim, we have, you always tell us to pay attention not to you, but to the evidence. And they marshaled the evidence from the research. And what they saw and the real breakthrough was, it was way too primitive to think of it as the importance of leadership or not leadership. What they saw was that it was what matters is the type of leadership and that that was what led to the level five insight that it was the leaders who were ambitious for something bigger than themselves that had an inner sort of dynamic of a personal humility and a ferocious will for something that is ultimately not about them those were the ones who built the great companies and that they were different than the comparison leaders so that was a case where I had this very, very tightly held belief that leadership didn't matter very much. My team told me I was wrong based on the evidence. And through the argument, we came to see that it's the, there was an insight about the type of leadership. And that was a profound turning point in my own learning and understanding. That's fantastic. And what was the other you were going to bring up? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, this is... Uh, so a little story that's in BE 2.0, but this is the one that I still struggle with. 
So Bill, my mentor, who I wrote this book with, was wonderful, closest thing to a father I ever had. And he'd guided me in so many, so many ways. But one of the ways he had an impact on me that I wish I still could do better, I just get wrong. And I got wrong then, is that I, uh, I was really struggling with writing. It was the first book and, and I was just struggling. I was fighting, I was suffering. And anybody who writes knows that writing is always hard. You never, it's like running. Oh yeah. You might get faster, right? Exactly. Right? And so it's awful. It's, it's, <laughs> but I it's love awful. it. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like running. It's awful, but I love it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and even if you run uh, uh, faster, it still hurts because if you're going to run your best, it's always going to hurt. So writing is like running. It never gets easier. You only get better. So I, uh, uh, I, was, I was struggling and I was throwing things in the wastebasket after a, a day of work. And I was just like, this is just so hard. And I went to Bill and I was working on the drafts and, and Bill's we were working on this together. And he listens to me whine about this and complain about how hard it is and about, and I was expecting Bill to give me this, this lecture, this, you know, kind of like pep talk about, yeah, this is the time to double down. It's like, you know, it is like the last six miles of the marathon and you just have to accept your suffering and grit it through. And, and what I got was a lecture on fun. (laughs) And Bill said, yeah, isn't that wonderful? It was a lecture on fun. And Bill looked at me and he said, well, okay, so if we can't figure out how to make this fun, we should stop doing it. And I have always had this, you know, I think it's because of all the drive that came from me from young. Like I will will myself, I will create a father. I will will myself independent of that. I will, I will drive myself to do what it is I want to do. And there was this sense of like, just, I will, you know, I will, crush myself to get there, whatever it takes, no matter how much it hurts, right? There was this kind of model I had in my head that if you can just stay focused on the big thing and suffer longer than anyone else, you're going to get there, right? And Bill had this completely different view, which was, if you can't figure out how to make it fun, you should stop doing it. And, and it was like one of this massive revelations for me. It's just, it was, it was almost like an entirely new way of looking at the world. And what I really came away with from that is how Bill learned. He had such a marvelous joy of his life. And when he had a heart attack, after we turned into manuscript, we got together to have waffles at the Peninsula Creamery, as we often did. And he was putting butter and syrup on his waffles after he'd recovered from his heart attack. And I said, Bill, what are you doing putting butter on your waffles? And he said, you know, when I was going into the operating room, I thought to myself, you know, if this is it, I'm okay with that. Hit a quintuple bypass. Because I've really led a great life. If it were to be taken from me at this very moment, Dorothy and I have had a great run at Dorothy's wife, and I've had a really great life, and so be it. He said, to know that, to really know that when you're being wheeled in. He said, so I've decided I'm not going to confuse a long life with a great life, and I'm putting the butter on my waffles. And I still think about how Bill found a way to have fun 
in everything. And I was wrong that the only way to really make it work out great is to just outwork and outsuffer. So do you put your butter on your waffles now? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I'm metaphorically, I do, I actually, I do like butter on my waffles. Uh, and I, <laughs> <laughs> so um, really and metaphorically, yes. Met- metaphorically, um, I'll never retire. I will only renew and continue to be engaged in my creative work. But the way I like to think of it is that is kind of the difference between light force and dark force motivations. Dark force motivations are things like anger or a need for recognition because your dad never paid attention to you or Mm -hmm. fear or just a sheer revenge, whatever, (laughs) dark force motivations. Like, you know, and those can be very powerful. And I used to really think I needed the dark force motivations to have drive. And then there's light force motivations, which is, I love doing this. I really believe in it. I'm super curious. Oh, it's a constant sense of discovery. Uh, I love the people I'm working with, right? It's really like love envelops it all in various ways. And you have light force motivations. And what I've observed over the course of my own life is that when I was maybe 22, I would say I was out of 100 points, 80 points dark force, 20 points light force. And now that I'm in my 60s and hopefully have another two or three decades of productive work to go, I'm finding that Bill lived in the light force and I'm moving more to maybe certainly more than half the points are light force. I love what I do. I love that I get to do it. I love that we get to have this conversation. I love to be able to wrestle with ideas. I love to share them. I love to do the research. And I love the people in my life. And what I've learned is that the dark force motivations are not very sustainable. And the light force motivations are perpetual. And they can keep you going until you run out of breath. And so for me, my butter on the waffles is to be more and more driven by the light force motivations and less and less driven by the dark force motivations. That's fantastic. And what's next on your journey? What are you, what are you looking forward to? So I, um, uh, as, as you and I were talking earlier, Christina, one of the things I think both you and I share is that we see we're interested in big human questions. You're much, you're very much tapped into the sort of the zeitgeist of humanity, the zeitgeist of technology, the zeitgeist of how the dynamics of the world are unfolding and why. Um, I'm very interested in enduring human questions and the research has been a way to do that and business is just the data set to get there. I've now moving on to a question I've wanted to address for 30 years almost 30 years. It was put in my head by a great mentor named uh, John Gardner, who wrote a book in 1962 called Self-Renewal. And John believed that one of the greatest costs of society is the failure to renew, the failure of societies to renew, self-renew, the failure of institutions, organizations, companies to self-renew, 
and the failure ultimately of individuals to self-renew over the long arc of a life. And I went to John when I was um, in my 30s and I, I told him I wanted to do research on the question of self-renewal because I was so taken with his book and he was in his 70s and he very kindly, I saw all my notes, gave me guidance. But he suggested I should put the question off because it would take me decades to do my great company's research. And I think he maybe also sensed I was too young to really wrestle with the question and I had more maturing to do to be able to do it well. But about five years ago in my late 50s, uh, I could see the my great company's research, what makes great companies tick, kind of reaching a point where my curiosity will have been satisfied. And I feel that that's largely happened now on that question. And so I took up the question and I'm now embarked on the question of self-renewal. And I'm about five years into a study which asks a very simple question. Why do some people remain remarkably self-renewed over the long course of a life, no matter what life throws at them? And how do people renew in different ways? over the long course of a life? And what really are the patterns that we can, and what are the insights and concepts and principles? Because it's not a success question. You might actually choose to be less successful in order to be more renewed. And then in the long run, Christine, where I really see this, you and I talked earlier on about big questions, right? And odyssey questions and so forth. I actually think the first three decades of my research on what makes great companies tick at its deepest level was about understanding renewal for organizations and companies. I didn't really understand, know that that was that, but now I can see that that's the case. The theme of the ever renewing company that becomes great because it renews continually well over time. That's actually, I think I understand that pretty well. I'm now going to do the individual self renewal. And then if I do get to live into my eighties or nineties productively, I hope to add the third piece. And before I'm done, if I'm granted the time, health and luck and all of that, if I'm granted the time, what I hope to have is before I'm done, a three layer cake that essentially answers or addresses the question of societal renewal, organizational renewal, which we've done, and individual renewal, and how all they tie together. And if I'm able to get that all done, I'll feel like I've been well spent. Wow. Well, it's it's amazing to hear that long-term plan starting 30 years ago and, and continuing into two new layers. Thank you so much for talking with us, Jim. This has been incredible. Well, you're very, very welcome. I've loved, loved your questions. talking with Jim, I'm so impressed by how relevant some of his research and insight from his first books still is today, almost 30 years later. The Stockdale Paradox was something I learned about early in this pandemic, and I think it's been so relevant to so many of us, as setback after setback this past year can feel crushing. But in the second half of this interview, what I really loved was that we got down to two things that also define Jim as a person. His humility, as evidenced by the fact that he changed his mind on a fundamental part of his research and study, leadership, and his flexibility of mind, 
his willingness to shift and grow. As evidenced by his, if you can't figure out how to make it fun, stop doing it, conversation with his mentor and friend, Bill. I've come to think of it as the have the butter conversation. Not as in always only eat butter, but it's about that a rich life is multidimensional and finding joy in life might just come in little pats at a time. But you can make it easier by choosing to learn, listen, and grow, just like Jim has. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Don't forget to subscribe if you liked this episode. We have a fantastic lineup of guests coming this year, and you won't want to miss any of them. If you have any friends interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as leaders, please send them links to our show. We've been sharing some of our favorite moments in audio clips on Inc.'s Instagram if you're looking for an easy way to share. Also, we'd love if you could leave us some stars and a review on Apple Podcasts. It just takes a moment, and it really helps other people who'd love this podcast find us. You can drop us a note anytime at whatiknowatinc.com or find me on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who just left a sticky note saying he's off to start his own root beer stand, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Ligorio-Tapkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.